0: A search for significance. We've, we're looking at, essentially looking at Solomon's life in Ecclesiastes. If you've got your Bible you probably want to turn pretty much to about the middle, just after Proverbs and uh, just before the Song of Solomon, just, which is just before Isaiah and we're in Ecclesiastes and we've introduced this. Over, uh, over these last few weeks we've seen That there is a difference between attaining success or fame that is often attained from achievements or wealth. And Solomon certainly had both of those and yet he comes to the end of his life. And this is, the book of Ecclesiastes is written perhaps weeks, maybe months before Solomon died. And... Part of the tragedy here, as we'll see next week as we unpack his final moments, the conclusions he comes to in his final weeks of his life are so dramatically different to the things that he says throughout this book. In fact, this book, the book of Ecclesiastes, is Solomon tracing his life story and how he tried so many things to find what, he, what we're referring to as significance for his life. Significance comes, it, it brings with it that sense that my life counts for something, it's worth it. I'm on this planet, I'm contributing, I'm going to leave this planet, a better place for having been here. I'm leaving a legacy behind. What I've done matters, what I do matters. I'm helping people. I'm making a significant difference. Just as, by the way, the graphics that I'm using on this screen features this chessboard and, and I kind of feel like I'm cheering for the pawn. And one of the things about life is we, we often want to be the king on the chessboard <laughs> or the rook or the bishop or the castle or something like that. But not many of us go, oh, I want to be the pawn. <laughs> And yet, it's often the pawn that plays the most significant part in the game. And I've come to realize that the more you you follow Christ, the more being a pawn is a privilege. Being just a piece in his picture, being a part of what he's doing, you don't have to be the main part, you don't have to be the hero. You can be a part of the story. And that's so that's that's a part of where I want to finish up next week as well as we look at how we find significance in life. In a moment I'm also going to share very briefly about one of the most famous Tasmanians that the world has ever known. He was born in Hobart in June 1909. He achieved unbelievable fame. He did many of the things that Solomon did, including made love to arguably over a thousand women, which was a bragging point. He achieved phenomenal wealth. And yet, in the pursuit of wealth, and as we're, we're, we're going to see as we look at Uh, this topic today, that his pursuit of pleasure ultimately led to his early demise. He'd be one of the most famous Tasmanians ever, so we'll we'll draw a little bit of a life lesson from him as well. So we're going to see that Solomon is describing in this book that he attained Phenomenal wealth, he, he was on a, what would be the equivalent today of $1.153846 million a week. $1,153,846 a week was, was roughly, in today's language, what he was earning a week. And despite having all that wealth, which you would think you could do a lot with, he largely spent it on himself... And he says this, as we'll see in a moment, he says that he spent it on developing things, gardens and buildings, he, he bought slaves, he bought women, we'll see, he says in a moment. And he gave his life over to trying, as we've already seen, what wealth could do for you and whether wealth brought you a sense of significance and a sense of, uh, of purpose. We've seen... That, that he at- attained phenomenal fame. He, he got lots of attention. Sometimes you see people who think that if they can just get attention from people, their life will make sense. Well, he had phenomenal attention. Kings and queens travelled literally from uh, across the known world to spend time with him. Because of his fame, we are told. And yet he says it was empty. It was empty. The word he uses for empty is vanity, just vanity. In fact, he introduces himself in verse 1 and then in verse 2, as he takes us on the journey from where he was as a young man. Can you imagine being 20 years of age? 20 years of age? You're, you're the most powerful person in the known world and you've got a, a weekly income of $1.153 million. Can you imagine what that would do to any 20-year-old? You don't have to look too far, we've already seen what it does... We've seen that there have been sporting stars and media celebrities who've had similar amounts of money, which is roughly $60 million a year. And we've seen what it's done to them. I was listening to a philosopher yesterday who was into rock and roll and he said he was watching a rock and roll documentary on the great figures throughout the history of rock and roll. And he said, after a while, you can just just forget about the name. The story stays the same. They achieved international fame, international success. They got into wild living, women and drugs. And next thing, their health is gone, their money is gone and there has been. He said this story is repeated thousands of times over. So here we've got one example in the Bible. This is Solomon and the Bible doesn't hold back from describing not only what Solomon did but what he thought as he did it. And here's the thing about reading the Bible, that if you're uninitiated, if you don't understand that the Bible will often record things that are wrong, accurately. It will record the wrong event, in other words, this should not have happened, and it records it accurately. So we see in Scripture that there were some horrible atrocities committed by people that were not authorized to do it. These were... were armies that defied God refused to keep his law they came in and they massacred people and I've heard people quote these passages from the Bible and say things like this see the Bible endorses violence the Bible does nothing of the sort it condemns it and if you want to know that it's summed up in the person of Jesus Christ who it says in Hebrews chapter 1 is the express image of God If you want to know what God is like, Richard Dawkins says he's a megalomaniac. He's a murderous megalomaniac. I'm telling you, Richard Dawkins is wrong. You want to know what God is like? Look at Jesus. That'll tell you who our Heavenly Father's like. When Jesus encountered violence, he did not respond with violence. You know, recently in Paris, unless you've been living under a rock you would know that there's been a huge, huge stir in Paris because the Charlie Hebdo magazine and the Jewish synagogue were attacked where um, I think it was 18 people lost their lives. And someone pointed out that, yes, uh, arguably the the satirical cartoons depicting Islam were actually, uh, they would probably offend most people's sensibilities... But, but I was reading in Breakpoint yesterday, which is the, the weekly, the, actually the daily email that uh, Chuck Colson founded. And John Stone Street said this, Islam is one of the minor victims of Charlie Hebdo's satire. The most prominent a target for Charlie Hebdo in their satirical ridicule is Christians. Christianity has been, and Jesus, has been ridiculed far more than anything else that magazine has ever done. And the difference is, Christianity reflects Jesus Christ. And we do not respond with violence. We don't. Jesus didn't. And so the Bible records dastardly things, quite accurately. It also records lies. Accurately. For example, when Satan came into the Garden of Eden and told the woman, The moment you eat of this fruit, you'll become like God. That was a lie. Why is it a lie? Because she was already like God. She was already created in the image of God. Satan was offering nothing, but he made it out that she could have the power that God has, the attributes that God has. That's a lie, but the Bible records it accurately. Here we have Solomon on his journey where he, he has all this money. He has an intellect that is, that is beyond imagination. He, he has one of the grandest intellects in human history. He was a world expert, expert in fields of science and philosophy and art and music and poetry. This man's mind was amazing. And yet he says, no matter what I gave my mind to, I couldn't help but think it's all pointless. Life is all pointless. Vanity of vanities, he says. He says he gave his life to then work. If I can just work, I can forget about all the things I know and just work and put in a hard day's work. And he says, all I got from my toil was sweat. It meant nothing to me at the end. Then he thought, maybe, maybe (laughs) the point to life is if I can make love to women. Because after all, there are people who today promote the evolutionary theory, who say, you're only on this planet to pass on your genes. Well, he certainly had a go. Over 846 wives or something like that, and over hundreds of concubines, I've lost count. And he says, he says this, and this is how you know most of what he was retelling us about, what he was thinking at the time. You know it's not true, but this is what he says. A good man is not hard to find, but a good woman never found one. I was just interested to see what the reaction would be to that. But I'm saying this so that when you read that in Scripture, you go, that's in the Bible, it's saying, a good woman who can find. Yes, understand it's written by a man whose thinking was warped. And he's telling you what he was thinking at that time. We get glimpses in Ecclesiastes. For example, much of chapter 5 is is actually glimpses where he goes, look, in my wisdom I discovered this. And most of it is pretty accurate. It's it's actually right. But then he'll throw in a clang and he'll go, but what's the point? So you've got to read it in light of all the other scriptures as well. So if you read something in here and you go... There's there's a good woman, it's hard to find, There's, there's no women who are worth anything? Ask yourself this question, does the rest of Scripture teach that? The answer is, absolutely not. So, in light of that, he gave himself for pleasure, and I want to look at this, it's my pleasure. And I hear people say this all the time, that this is what their life is all about. And they don't necessarily use the word pleasure, they use other words that kind of mean the same thing. Like happiness as long as you're happy that's the main thing as long as you do what makes you happy (laughs) that's the main thing well Solomon tried this and let's see how he went he says in chapter 2 verse 1 the start of this verse he says this I said in my heart come now I will test you with pleasure enjoy yourself and my goodness me, didn't he? In verse 10, he, he, he's about to tell us that he tried every pleasure available. Can you imagine what that would be? That would be every drink, every food, every woman he could get his hands on. He says this, Everything I wanted, I took. I never said no to myself. I gave in to every impulse, held nothing back. I sucked the marrow of pleasure out of every task. My reward to myself for a hard day's work. So he tried everything. That's from the Message Bible. That's a great translation of that verse. Really captures what he did. So Solomon says in this book that he was looking for pleasure. He didn't hold back to find pleasure. Where did he look for pleasure? He says that he found some pleasure in work. He also says that he found some pleasure in having a drink, wine. In fact, he says in Ecclesiastes 10 verse 19, bread is made for laughter. Uh, I've never made me laugh but um, wine gladdens life and money answers everything. And that's how you know what he's saying was actually his perspective at the time. But it's not true. Money doesn't answer all the problems that life presents. That's in Ecclesiastes 10. 19. He wrote in another book, Proverbs 21 verse 17, "...whoever loves pleasure will be a poor man, he who loves wine and oil will not be rich." So he was coming to some different conclusions toward the end of his life. In Ecclesiastes chapter 3 verses 12 and 13, he says this, "...I perceived that there is nothing better for them, that is people, than to be joyful and do good as long as they live." Also, that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in his toil. That is God's gift to man. So, toil, work. Take pleasure in what you eat, what you drink. Take pleasure in your work. This is really why you're on the planet, he says, is what he was thinking at the time. Solomon also says that he found pleasure in learning. And many of you have found the same thing. It's, it's an utter delight to learn something new. When Solomon learnt, he says, all there was to learn in his day. Ecclesiastes 1.13 I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. It is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. So learning is hard work. It's an unhappy business to learn any high school student had to do homework will know, well okay pastor a lot of verses in Ecclesiastes may not be true but that one, that dang right that one's true. Uh, learning is uh, an unhappy business and it can be. It can be hard work. Alright, Solomon said also that he found pleasure in women. So uh, he says in Ecclesiastes 2 verse 8, again from the Message Bible, I piled up silver and gold, loot from kings and kingdoms. I gathered a chorus of singers to entertain me with song. And most exquisite of all pleasures, how about this word? Did you know this in the Bible? Voluptuous maidens for my bed. So This is what he's trying. This is in the Bible. This man is trying sex, as much as he can get. To find something that gives him a sense that this is what life's all about. And yet, he will tell us, in the end it all became empty. Now here's the thing. You're created with certain desires and one of the desires that you're created with is a desire to have pleasure. You're actually created with that desire. C.S. Lewis said this, Every desire you have is in response to an an answer that can meet that desire. You desire... uh, you're, You're thirsty. You desire a drink. Why do you desire a drink? Because there is a drink that you could have that could meet that desire to satisfy your thirst. You desire something to eat. Why do you desire something to eat? Because there's something you could eat and it will satisfy that desire. You desire pleasure or happiness why because you can be you can be happy you can enjoy life life can be enjoyable in fact let's jump into the new testament first timothy chapter 6 and verse 17 we see paul telling timothy to tell the people that he's pastoring and, and timothy at this point is pastoring the church at ephesus the most written to church in the new testament and he says this as for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty. Now who would have thought, you might have thought, Paul was going to say to Timothy, tell those people who are rich in your church to give all their money away to the poor. He doesn't say that. He says, just tell them, don't be arrogant about how rich you are. Don't be haughty. Nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches. So don't If you're a rich person, and by the way, every person in this building right now is rich by world standards, and you may not think you are, but that just simply validates the statement that you probably don't know how the rest of the world lives, we are phenomenally wealthy. And the problem is, as it says in this verse, we can often end up trusting money to be the answer to our problems. Don't trust in the uncertainty of riches it says but on God this is what Paul's telling Timothy but on God now notice this last little bit who richly provides us with everything to enjoy how's that God richly provides you with things whatever things you have he gives you those things so you can enjoy them who would have thought does anyone have something that they own, that they enjoy? One person, two person, three person, four point five. See, there, why is there such a reluctance? You, your hands go, oh yeah, man. I, there's plenty. Because the Bible actually tells you to enjoy it. But get the priority right. It says acknowledge where it came from. Acknowledge who gave it to you. When you enjoy that thing, put it down and say, thank you, God, for my new Samsung NX1 camera. Oh, God. Thank you, thank you. I was talking with um, Josh and Carmel, who are getting married in a few months. I just want to see your reaction. Getting married next Saturday. I know when you're getting married. Getting married next Saturday. I just want to see if you're listening. And we are doing the wedding vows, and, and we came up to the word cherish. And I was, I was talking with Ronnie and Amanda, and they're getting married Saturday week. We're just, they're just going to. So it'll be Saturday week. So, with both of these couples, and we come across the word cherish, and we're, we're asking, you're about to vow to God and to another person that you're going to cherish someone. Tell me what that looks like. And I gave the example of, well, watch me with my camera. I cherish it, <laughs> I take it around with me. Wherever I go, it goes. It's, it's right there with me. And you know, when you, just, just by the way, husbands, when you vowed on your wedding day to love, honor, and cherish your wife, you made a commitment that you would, you would love to be with her. You would love to. You're off to the supermarket. I'm coming too. <laughs> that applies to you. It doesn't apply to me. But it <laughs> applies to you. <laughs> to cherish. But whatever you... You may have a thing... That you like, and children, you may have something—a toy or a thing that you you really like. And as a Christian, it's not a matter of saying I'm not allowed to like things because we're not supposed to be materialistic. Well, we live in a material world, but the thing is, we don't put our hope and trust in those things. We say, "Thank you, God, that you've given me lots of toys." And, and and I often pray that prayer actually. I see my computer as a toy, my cameras as a toy, my car as a toy, and I'm just so grateful for all my toys. Thank you, God. And I'm just all I'm doing, don't look at me like I'm not spiritual, because I'm just applying that verse right there. <laughs> Acknowledge God who gives you all things richly to enjoy. So taking pleasure in things is not a bad thing. But it can be. Do you get that? In fact, I'm going to make this point in a moment. So we are designed to derive pleasure from things. In a marriage, a husband and wife can derive pleasure from each other. In life, you can derive pleasure from your friends, from your things, as we've just mentioned. And we'll see in a moment where the Bible actually says we... Should take pleasure in. So Solomon, he discovered that sin ultimately does not satisfy. And and we, we see that God has designed us for being people who crave pleasure. And this is what the psalmist says in Psalm 16 verse 11, "...you make known to me the path of life, and in your presence there is fullness of joy." How many people think of God as the source of joy, a source of great pleasure? But this is what it says. And I wonder, when we read about Jesus, do we read about a Jesus that was phenomenally attractive? Remember, the Bible also tells us that when they came to arrest Jesus, they didn't know who he was... The soldiers who had never seen him didn't, there wasn't anything that made, oh, he's the, I mean, of course, if you believe some of the Hollywood movies that have come out about Jesus, he's easy to pick. He's the one with the deep blue eyes, the halo, and the blonde hair that he flicks back as he sips his latte. But the Bible actually says there was nothing that made him look different to anyone else. Isaiah says there was no form or comeliness or beauty about him physically yet we read about jesus that when he sat down in the streets the next thing that happened is kids gathered around him kids flocked to him when jesus went into the the seedy part of town pretty soon prostitutes gathered around not to do business but to be with him for the safety that he conveyed to them for the sense of For a moment, they could be with a real man. Not in a seedy way, but in a real way. There was something deeply attractive about Jesus. Deeply attractive. And when people spent time with Jesus, they were nourished. Fullness of joy, pleasures forevermore. I think after his resurrection, he, he appeared to the disciples. And they didn't see him for a few days. And Peter thought, oh... We must have been hallucinating and all must be a dream. He said, I'm going fishing. Remember this, John chapter 21? He goes off and he goes fishing and they didn't catch anything all night. And there it is, dusk. And there's someone on the beach and he says, have you caught anything? And he says, no, we've caught nothing. And this person on the beach says, put your net on the other side of the boat. Oh, stupid person on the beach, what would he know? But what have we got to lose? We've been at it all night, haven't caught. So they put the net on the other side of the boat. Remember what it says? They caught a catch of fish so great they could not bring it in. And as they're trying to bring it in, it says all eleven of them were rowing to bring the thing, and they could not bring the haul in. And then Peter thought, "Hang on, someone said that once before." Cast your net on the other side of the boat. It's the Lord, and it says Peter flung off his clothes. And he dived into the water and he swam ashore and there was Jesus on the beach with a fire going cooking fish which I find hilarious. (laughs) And there he is, there's Jesus cooking fish and there's Jesus just cooking fish and there's Peter just comes and he sits there in his presence. This is the Peter that denied Jesus three times, this is the Peter that deserves a dressing down. I mean if Peter was one of the deacons or elders in this church and he behaved like that I tell you he'd be getting a dress but I'd, but Jesus is cooking breakfast for him and Jesus says do you love me you know I love you Lord do you love me you know I love you Peter do you love me yes Lord I love you and at that Peter heard the the 10 guys struggling with the net <laughs> thanks a lot Peter (laughs) and it says this you read it in John chapter 21 Peter gets up from Jesus and goes over and single handedly brings in the net what 10 men couldn't do from 5 minutes with Jesus he has enough strength and power to do all by himself wouldn't you want to spend time with someone that could do that to you Wouldn't that fill your life with a little bit of joy and pleasure? And that's what Psalm 16 verse 11 says. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy, pleasures forevermore. Wow. Solomon discovered that pleasure can be derived from sin or evil, but it doesn't satisfy. We read in Hebrews 11, it says that Moses... Forsook the pleasure, the momentary. It says it uses this word momentary. The momentary pleasures of Egypt, in order to obey God. The the momentary pleasures. Sorry, not of Egypt, while in Egypt. The momentary pleasures of sin, and this is really important to understand. Sin can be really, really pleasurable. Let's make no mistake about it. Sinning can be an awful lot of fun. Sin can bring momentary happiness it can but ultimately it doesn't satisfy in fact I want to just give you a little sneak snippet of how Solomon finishes up his journey because this is this is true everything you're about to read in chapter 12 of Ecclesiastes is true this is Solomon coming to the final weeks and months of his life and he says this remember also your creator in the days of your youth before the evil days come and the years draw near of which you will say, "I have no pleasure in them." In other words, he says, there will come a point in your life where those things that used to satisfy, those things that used to give you joy, those things that you used to get pleasure out of, they won't do it for you anymore. They won't do it for you anymore. I could tell you stories of, of people that I've spoken with over the years. Where well, I could illustrate this, but I, I think for discretion I I won't. Every evil pleasure was once a good that's simply been distorted. We could look at the evil, the evil, insidious evil of drugs, illicit drugs. You know they actually do have a good purpose. They Do have a good... But when you misuse them and distort them, it's horrible. It's just horrible. It can destroy a life. When pleasure becomes an idol in someone's life, this is what they're living for, it destroys them. Pleasure is a bad master. A very bad master. It destroys. And as we contrast seeking pleasure with significance, it's... You'll find that a significant life is not formed from selfish pleasure-seeking. Let me just touch on the famous Tasmanian for a moment. His name is Errol Flynn. Anyone ever heard of Errol Flynn? Everyone over a certain age has heard of Errol Flynn. He was a swashbuckling Hollywood actor who left Tasmania around about the age of 20 or so and landed in Hollywood hadn't really done much acting but he he was one of the most debonair handsome men on the planet and he landed roles as robin hood and zorro and and uh uh some ship captain and he he ended up making lots and lots of money he bought a home kind of up near i think near the hollywood sign He, he was overlooking hollywood and he used to have some of the Some of the wildest parties there and he became well known for the parties that he had. And Errol Flynn eventually became unable to love, physically, I'm trying to be discreet. His liver became destroyed from the amount of alcohol that he had. His brain became fried from the amount of drugs he'd taken. And his body was riddled, I believe, with Uh, certain diseases that come from bad behaviour, and he died completely worn out, the age broke, the age of fifty, October nineteen fifty nine. He died, having sought every pleasure that was available to any man. He tried it, and he died empty. What a tragic way to live. We don't need many real-life examples because, brother, there's just so many of them. I think of, in tennis, I think of people like Bjorn Borg who's still alive, but that guy made millions. And by the time he was in his early 30s, he'd lost it all and gone through three divorces, contemplating suicide. His best friend, Vetus Gerolitis, had a pot party and at the end of it did commit suicide. Man, man. But here's the irony of living a significant life. A life where you're not living for pleasure. You're living for something much higher, much grander, much more dignified. The irony of it is, if you're not pursuing pleasure, you live a significant life. It is the most pleasurable life you can live. It's a life that brings with it tremendous pleasure. How do you begin to attain it? It's a refocus. You live a significant life by serving other people, not just living for your own pleasures. Jesus Christ came and he was the role model on this. He says this, the thief comes only to steal, kill and destroy. And we might add some descriptions there that Jesus told us about the thief, the devil, Satan. He said this in John chapter 8, Satan is a liar and the father of lies. You know what Satan will do? He will sugarcoat sin. And when you swallow that sugar coating, it's nice and sweet. And as we see in scripture, in several places it says that people will swallow this stuff and it's, oh, it's like honey. Oh, that's nice. And then it gets into their stomach, and the sugar coating's gone, and the real stuff just takes over, and it is horrible. And that's like what the devil offers. He'll sugarcoat stuff, but ultimately. It's horrible. And Jesus said this, I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Or have life's pleasures to the full. Life's pleasures to the full. The Bible warns us not to make pleasure our defining focus it warns this in 2 Timothy 3 but understand this in the last days there will come times of difficulty for people will be lovers of self lovers of money proud arrogant abusive disobedient to parents ungrateful unholy heartless unappeasable slanderous without self control brutal not loving good treacherous reckless swollen with conceit lovers of pleasure Rather than lovers of God. So, the Bible warns that in the very last days there will come a people who will say, My pleasure is the most important thing in my life. The government should legislate so I can take advantage of whatever pleasure I want. If I feel like I should have it, I should have it. I have a right to it. And the Bible warns that will be pretty much an indication of the end how depraved man has become. So let's look at the positive. Because I want you to leave here having had a pleasurable experience in church today. And having enough information so that you leave from here and go into this week and go, I can take pleasure from... Well, what can you take pleasure from? From your marriage. Who would have thought you could actually enjoy being married? You can. In fact, the Bible says... It's one of the sources of highest pleasure. Solomon actually said, "...enjoy life with your wife, whom you love, all the days of your vain life that he's given you under the sun, because that is your portion in life and in your toil which you toil under the sun." So even in the midst of all the toil and work and so on, you can enjoy being married. Enjoy being married. You might want to give your wife or your husband just a squeeze of the hand and that kind of dreamy look that only you can give them. And I'll just take a moment and wait. <laughs> <laughs> the Bible encourages us to take pleasure from food. Is this going to be a problem for anyone? <laughs> Daily food. In fact, in that same passage, First Timothy Paul says, can you, I'm, I'm putting words in his mouth, can you believe it? There will come a time when people pretending to be Christians, pretending to be Christians will do the following. They will forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. Could you believe that? Paul wrote this around about 60 AD. He said, the time will come when there will be people who claim to be Christians who will forbid certain people from marrying and tell them to stop eating certain foods on a Friday. Can you believe what Paul was saying? And he says, God's created marriage and He's created food to be received with thanksgiving. What a wonderful thing to be able to hold the hand of the person beside you and look up to heaven and say, God... Thank you for this. What's someone having for lunch today? Sandwiches. I'm I'm looking for where we might wing an invite. No, 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 not your place. Well, well what's it, what's someone else having for lunch? Oh, I see. You all see where I was going with this. What are we having for lunch? Not much, so don't try and wing an invite with us. <laughs> so the Bible encourages us, as we've seen in that verse before, to take pleasure in our things. God's given us everything to enjoy. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 17... The Bible encourages us to take pleasure in our work, enjoy your work. There's lots of verses we could look at here where it says, serve your masters with gladness and things like that. Take pleasure in the work that you do. Here's one that I really enjoy because it says, when we do what God wants, when we work the way God wants, we bring Him pleasure and if you really are someone who loves God knowing that if you give him pleasure, it'll be a pleasure to you. He says this in Philippians 2.13, For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Wow, I love that verse. I hate the verse after it, but I love this one. This is really, really good. So the purpose of life is is found in seeking and honouring God, not in pleasure-seeking. Pleasure-seeking is a lousy God. But God is a really good God. He's really qualified to be God. And here's the question I want to ask of you today. Do you want to live a significant life? A life where when we come to that place where your life is over, we can say they were a good person. They contributed. They, they lived a significant life. A significant life. You don't have to be a world leader. You don't have to be a super-duper business person. You could be those things, but you don't have to be. You might just be like what I want to be, just a pawn on the chessboard of God's chessboard and happy to serve Him however, just to live a significant life. Do you want to live a significant life? As Ali said before, when he told the story of the, the gardener who rescued the young Winston Churchill and... You don't know what's in every child. And I pray that as parents, we might be able to help our children to choose. I want to be a significant person. A significant person. Do you want to be significant? Do you want to live a significant life? Here's where it begins. It begins with a prayer. A significant prayer. A prayer that says something like this. God, have your way in my life. You may have prayed that once, 10, 20 years ago. Can I encourage you to pray it every day? Christian, you may have have continued to follow Christ, but you may have let him get a couple of steps ahead. Catch up. Today, Jesus, help me to walk with you. Help me to live for you be with you, spend time with you. I want to live a significant life. Let's pray. Father, I pray for each of us here in this church that we will indeed choose to live a significant life by saying, have your way in my life. And perhaps you're here today and you've never given your life to Jesus. You don't know that your eternal destiny is secure. You don't know where you would go if you left this life and went into the next. And as we go from this life a life that ends into the next, a life that doesn't end. We can either be with God for eternity or be separated from Him for eternity based on what we've done with His offer of forgiveness. Will you receive His offer to have your sins forgiven? Will you say to Him, I want my sins forgiven. I thank you that you sent Jesus Christ to die on the cross for me. If so, pray that prayer. God, God, Please forgive me of my sin. Jesus, I pray that you would come into my life. Live in me and help me to live for you. I want to follow you all the days of my life. Fill me with your spirit. Show me things from your word that I need to know. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, Father, bless everybody here. May we know the love of God, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit in Jesus' name. And everyone said... Amen.